thought, let's just keep on going. I love it. And uh, we've come to this uh, moment where we're, we're in now what would be a very familiar passage, one of the greatest passages uh, in all the New Testament about the Lord Jesus is what we're going to read and look at this morning. And so I encourage you to follow along and just draw the blessing and encouragement from the text this morning that God uh, would have you to do. I want to really encourage you about next Sunday as well. Next Sunday uh, on the 9th of January, we have the Irwin family coming uh, to River City Baptist Church for our worship service at uh, 1030 and then for a special concert at 1.30. It's going to be really, really, really a wonderful day together. It's a free concert and uh, we want to encourage you to invite uh, other folks and to invite friends uh, even from other churches in the afternoon to be um, here as we worship the Lord together. It's going to be an exciting time. I'll have a greeting put up on Facebook from one of the uh, singers of the group. And they'll tell you a little bit about how you can go online and look at some of their music just to kind of get yourself familiar with them. And it's going to be, it really is a special day. I, I'm trying not to uh, uh, get super excited about it, although it's almost impossible. But this is a group that does really a lot of large venues. And for them to be able to stop by and be at our church on a Sunday is really a special thing for us. So I hope you will plan to be here to hear the Irwin family next Sunday. And uh, I could not be more uh, excited to have them with us. All right, John's Gospel, chapter number 6, beginning at verse number 1. The Bible says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that even one of them, excuse me, that every one of them may have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks, distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Amen. This is God's word. This morning I want to preach to you on this subject, more than enough. That's what Jesus is. He's not just enough. He's more than enough. Several years ago there was a West Texas farmer that had a ranch during the depression in danger of losing his ranch. His ranch was a small and relatively meager sheep ranch. He was struggling just to pay the operational expenses of principal and interest 
on his mortgage, little money left over for food and clothing and necessities, and like many other people at that time, was forced to live on government subsidies. Mr. Yates, day by day, watched as his sheep grazed over the West Texas hills. He was, no doubt, greatly troubled on how he would pay his bills until one day. A seismographic crew from an oil company came to the area and began to tell several ranchers near his home that it was possible that oil was on their land. They asked Mr. Yates for permission to drill a a well, and he signed a lease contract. When they dug the first well at 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve, and the first well came in producing oil at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were built that were twice as large, and over the 30 years after the discovery, a government test of one of the wells showed it still had the potential, 30 years later, of producing 125,000 barrels of oil every single day. Obviously, Mr. Yates' fortunes turned when he realized that what he was setting on was far more than he needed. He was now no longer a poverty-stricken man living on government subsidy. He was a multi-millionaire living in great wealth. He didn't even know that he owned the oil that was right beneath his feet. Could it be today that you, as a believer, are living far below your spiritual means in the Lord Jesus Christ? Could it be that you have settled in for a life that is not producing the kind of fruit of the Spirit that the Lord would and could produce in your life, would you and should you follow Him by faith the way that He intended? God is more than enough. God has more than enough. God can be more than enough for every single need that you have in your life. The Bible says in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly all above all that we can ask or think according to his power that works in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you all so that you all, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Let me run that verse by again. I don't know if you noticed all the alls in that verse, but you might want to latch on to that. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you all so that you, having all sufficiency, come on, in all things may abound to every good work. That's who Christ is to his people. All sufficient, all powerful, all the time, in all circumstances. He's more than enough. And no greater place in the Bible is this truth that God is more than enough for you evident than the story of the feeding of the 5,000. At the end of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we know that God did not just meet the need of the crowd that day. He exceeded abundantly above the needs of the crowd. In other words, he was more than enough for the crowd that day. So let's take a look at this very familiar uh, miracle that Jesus did and see what we might be able to learn this morning. First of all, I see that we can learn something about the moment of the miracle. The moment of the miracle. You back up to verses 1 through 4, and this is what you find. This was not really a ministry moment per se. In fact, when you study historically what was going on around this time when Jesus does this miracle, you will find that this was designed by Christ to be a recovery moment for his disciples. Let's read it again, verse number 1. After these things, and I'll get back to that in just a minute. 
After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because of the, uh, the signs which he performed on those who were deceased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And then verse 5 says, watch, now Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude. Did you watch that? Did you see how that unfolded? Jesus left a very challenging moment in ministry to be reassigned and redeployed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And before he was going to re-engage in ministry, this was designed to be a moment of rest. In fact, if you just back up just a few weeks in our study, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the study of the life of Christ because of the Christmas season. But if you recall some of the last sermons that I preached about the life of Christ leading up to uh, this moment that we're at right now, there were two very significant things that happened. One was the death of John the Baptist. Remember when we talked about that? Now, folks, this would have been a heart-wrenching and heart-breaking emotional and personal loss for the Lord Jesus. He lost his cousin and arguably his best friend. John the Baptist was a great leader. He this would have been not only demoralizing for, or excuse me, uh, 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 discouraging for our Lord. It would have been demoralizing for the other disciples. Maybe seeing a little bit of a preview of what their future actually might hold as well. So John the Baptist has uh, been executed, and the word has now come to Christ. The other thing that we learned just before Christmas was that the disciples had been sent out uh, on a preaching mission. And there was a, a lot of um, uh, uh, general healing and ministry, not only among Christ, but also his disciples. This is when, back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, he saw the multitudes scattered as sheep having no shepherd, Right? And he, says, and he says to them, uh, 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 I'm praying the Lord of the harvest that will send forth labors into his harvest. These disciples have now returned and gathered again. It was a recovery moment. They were depleted people. They had depleted resources. And in Mark chapter number 6 and in Luke chapter number 9 and Matthew chapter 14, each of those tell us that after the moments I just described for you, Jesus actually said to his disciples, let's Go over and rest a little while. So when in verse number one it says after these things, that's what it's talking about right there. After this intense season of ministry, after all of this work and all of this heartbreak, Jesus encouraged his disciples to go rest. So what did they do? Jumped in a boat, headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to go find a place of rest. Now unbeknownst to Jesus, okay, while he is taking his disciples up in a mountain to rest, there is a multitude of people who were following Jesus on the other side of the sea. This is really intriguing. That instead of just leaving Jesus alone, you know what they did? They actually by foot began to travel over to where Jesus was and ultimately caught up with him. That's what happens in verse number 5. So what was intended to be a recovery moment, what was intended to be a rest moment, was turned into a ministry moment. Folks, I want to tell you something about the way that God works in the moments of miracles and the moments of ministry opportunities in our lives. They're oftentimes not the ones we design. They're oftentimes not the ones we try to work up. They're oftentimes not the ones we try to manufacture. They're the ones as we are going through the regular routines of our lives, resting, working, serving, ministering, doing whatever, that God will take a non-ministry moment and turn it into a major ministry milestone. Maybe that's our problem. Maybe our problem is we are wasting our lives waiting for giant opportunities 
while missing the obvious opportunities right in front of our faces. Maybe the greatest opportunities lie right in our very presence and we miss them every single day. It's interesting that in 1912, as you know, the Titanic was built and sunk. Uh, it was the most impressive ship that was built at that time. It stood over 883 feet in length. It was longer than the tallest building on earth at the time. 1,800 people left England that night, and on April 14, 1912, two and a half hours roughly later, only 675 people survived the sinking of the Titanic. Little do most people know that while the Titanic was shipped, there was another ship being built in, in, uh, in England. It was called the SS Medina. It was not nearly as large, as grand, or as publicized as the Titanic. Nobody claimed it to be an unsinkable ship, but guess what? It did end up sailing for nearly 70 plus years, and nothing ever sunk it. In fact, uh, it carried onions for years between New York and Texas during World War II. It was converted into a troop ship and carried soldiers across the ocean. It was bombed, it was torpedoed, but it never sank. After the war, it was sold as scrap, but it was rescued and converted into an Italian cruise liner uh, called the Roma. Years later, it was sold again for scrap. But again, someone came to its rescue and called it the M uh, MV Dulas. For many years, it held the record as the oldest active passenger ship in the world. Since 1978, she has welcomed over 20 million visitors in 450 ports in 90 nations across the world. Many lives, listen folks, many people want titanic moments in their lives. They want to do titanic things in their lives. Meanwhile, there can be just an old faithful ship that just keeps on moving and keeps on serving and keeps, come on, keeps on porting and keeps on helping and keeps on ministering, doing what it was intended to do. I want to urge you in 2022 to not miss the moments that God wants for you and search for something that you are looking for. Watch out. God doesn't want you to be a history watcher. He wants you to be a history maker. And the way you're likely going to do that is not through something that's going to write a biography about you. The way you're going to do that is by making small investments in ordinary moments where you touch people's lives this year. May I encourage you to take moments in 2022 to teach your children the gospel. To point out to them the works of God. Take that small moment while you may not teach a class or preach a sermon at your church. Take that small moment at work to share a brief testimony and word about Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. Take a moment in 2022 to invest a little bit more in the work of God. Give a little bit more, serve a little bit more, do a little bit more. Take a moment in a chaotic world to say a kind word, to send an encouraging note. Take moments to make memories in your marriage and invest deeply into the relationships that matter. Those are the things that are going to define who you are and what happens in your life when it's done. It's not the big moments that matter. It's the faithful little moments of serving God every day. Number one, we see the moment of the miracle. Number two, we see the message of the miracle. The message of the miracle. I'm going to give you the message of the miracle before I show it to you because it's a message that we all need to be reminded of over and over and over again. What was the message of the miracle? Well, remember, in verses 1 through 5, the target of this moment was the disciples, not the multitude. 
Now, the multitude is going to greatly benefit from this miracle, but I want to warn you to not think that this miracle was for the multitude as much as it was for the disciples. And we know that because in verses 6, 7, and 8, Christ is going to demonstrate specifically to them why he's doing this miracle in the first place. Notice, if you will, verse number 6, but, excuse me, at the end of verse number 5, he said to Philip, watch this, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What was the message of the miracle? The message of the miracle was to test the authenticity of the faith of the disciples. Or I may say it in a statement. The message of the miracle is this. God can be completely trusted to supply everything that you need. What you need this year is not a better job. You don't need a new marriage. You don't need a new location to live. You don't need a bigger house. You don't need any more cars. You don't need more influence. You need more of Jesus Christ and more trusting in him. That's the message of the miracle. The message of the miracle is that he wanted to show his disciples that you don't have anything that would be at all valuable to take care of this crowd, but I can be completely trusted. The way he does this is by testing. Did you see that word there? Testing his disciples. Now, lest you think this is some hardcore ninth grade pre-algebra teacher trying to trick you on a technicality, that's not what this is. Testing is not some creative little teacher engaging in awkward true or false statements to try to get you to make sure you're paying really close attention or you're going to lose five points. No, I'm not talking about the guy that says true or false, Moses built the ark. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the guy, okay, that tests or, if we will, proves the authenticity of faith. Why do you go on a test drive? Not to be tricked, but to prove, right? You go on a test drive on a vehicle to prove that the engine is running, that the brakes are working soundly, that the car is working in every way that you want it. You're not testing it because you're, you're trying to uh, be deceived or not deceived. You're testing it to prove it. And that is exactly what the word test in the Bible means. It means to prove the quality of something. In this particular case, it was to prove the validity of the disciples' faith. Now, if you're a thinking person, you will know this is not the only time in the Bible that somebody was tested by God in that way. What is the other time you read in the Bible that God tested somebody? It's in Genesis chapter number 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse number 1, it says, It came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham says, Behold, I am here. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get to the mountain of Moriah and offer him there a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And over in, in Genesis chapter 22, he's on a mountain, the mountain of Moriah, testing the faith of his follower, Abraham. Now, he's on a different mountain, testing his disciples, proving the quality of their faith, asking them the question, how much money do you think it's going to take to feed this whole multitude? Folks, listen. Jesus had no intention of them busting out a calculator, okay, and trying to figure everything out. Jesus had no intention of them going to the cupboard or the pantry and trying to count how much bread or how many pickled fish they had. That's not what was going on here, folks. 
Jesus, or excuse me, when God tempted uh, 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 Abraham in the Old Testament, it was not to try to twist him up and actually get him to murder or kill his own son. He was testing the authenticity of his faith. And I got to tell you, friend, what we need to be reminded of in 2022 more than anything else in life is simply this. We need to be reminded that our God can be absolutely, completely trusted to supply everything that we need. You can trust God. You can trust God. I was actually thinking this morning, flying over here, I mean, I literally was thinking, and I, I hate to admit how hard it was even for me to come up with the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you this question. When is the last time you did something by faith? We walk by faith and not by sight, but I do not think that is a definition of American Christianity. We walk by sight and not by faith. That's exactly what these disciples did. How much is it going to take to feed all these people? And one guy says, well, we got 200 um, days worth of pennies, okay, and, and a denarii, a penny was, was like uh, one days of wages. So he's saying, we've got, we've got enough uh, money here, but, but this is how much money we've got to fund our trip. This is nowhere near enough money to feed this many people, 5,000 men plus their families. This is just impossible, okay? And then, and, then, and, then, and then, of course, then, then Andrew steps up, and, and Andrew says, there's a kid here that's got five loaves and two fishes, but what are they among so many? We walk by sight more than we walk by faith. And how hard is it sometimes for us to walk by faith rather than sight when our bank accounts are full and our ki children are healthy and our church has padded pews and air conditioning and everything seems to be going well? It's not as easy to trust God. But I am here to tell you, we should be looking for ways to trust God because we walk by faith and not by sight. What is faith? Faith is flinging yourself in reckless confidence in God. When you talk about real faith, uh, uh, um, uh, mediocre Christians will actually think you're talking about something reckless. When you start talking about what it actually means to step out by faith, trust God in your giving and your serving and your and your and your position with your goals, with your dreams, with your with your um, with with the things that you own, your possessions. If you if you really, really, really start talking about what faith would look like in your life, people with calculators will start to think that you're reckless and out of control. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. Listen to this very carefully. Some people live life so carefully that they absolutely refuse to take risks. Everything has to be carefully regulated and under their control. Borders have to be defined. Guidelines have to be spelled out. Every dime has to be accounted for with no surprises. And after spending so much time and effort trying to live safe, they end life having never accomplished anything of any lasting value. They built nothing, tried nothing, and invested in no one. My friend, you can call me crazy if you want to, but I'm not trying to play it safe in 2020. And the amens have died out now. We're a mess today because we're playing it so safe. Man, God wants you to sell out, friend. He wants you all in. Come on. He wants your checkbook all in. 
He wants your service all in. He doesn't want you dangling around uh, the, the, the lake of indecision, stepping your toes in the water, occasionally try to figure out if this is what you want to do. Oh, no, friend. He wants you to cast yourself on him in a reckless way. And then, maybe just then, we might be living by faith. What does the disciples do? They check the budget first. Hey, listen, here's what we got. Here, I figure if I do this much, if, I, if, we, if, we, if we divide it up just perfectly among this, this is about how many you know, nibbles of bread each person's going to get. Then they check the pantry. Here's the boy comes up. And this is even, this is even hilarious that they even, I mean, you're trying to think, okay, I, you know, I've heard people try to emphasize with Andrew in this text that Andrew was like a soul winner bringing this kid to Jesus. Look, folks, that's not, that is not what's happening here. I'm not exactly sure how this all went down. I don't, I don't, I really, because of the way that Andrew asked Jesus what he asked, it's hard to imagine that Andrew went out in the crowd going, hey, man, you want to come and meet Jesus? Come on here. How many loaves you got? Five loaves? That's probably going to work. Okay, but no, he didn't do that because when he gets to Jesus, he's like, look, I don't, I just don't see how this is going to work out. It's possible that the kid was like in the front row of the venue. Now, let me just stop and explain this to you. What did this kid have? Okay, five loaves and two fishes. Now, don't get confused about five loaves. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about Publix. You go buy a loaf of bread, and it's this big, you know, and it's sliced up into 30 slices or whatever. That's not what a loaf was here. This is a boy's lunch. Five loaves would have been like little pitas, probably about this size maybe, and flat bread like it was in the Mediterranean. Little pickled fish that his mom, no doubt, sent off to him to go have an adventurous day near town where this awesome teacher is. And he comes up, and, he, and he's there setting. Maybe he's even nibbling on his first piece of bread. I don't know what's going on here. But the disciples were not thinking about what God can do. The disciples were thinking about what they could do. And their budget didn't have it. And their pantry could not supply it. And guess what? From a human perspective, they were correct. But what did they need to do? Okay, let's back this up. When Jesus says, how much is it going to take to feed these people? This is what the disciples should have said. Lord, I don't know, but I do know this much. I know you parted the Red Sea. I know that, that uh, the Israelites walked right through on the dry ground and the water stood up like, I know, I know for 40 years they wandered around the wilderness and you showered down manna from the sky and their clothes never got old and their shoes never withered off their feet. I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm pretty sure I saw you change water into wine. I'm pretty sure I told you, you told somebody to be healed 30 miles away. I saw you heal a woman, come on, with an issue of blood who had been like, that for 12 years I saw you raise Jairus's daughter from the dead I saw you demons in Gadara I'm not exactly sure how to feed this multitude but there's one thing I know for sure you can Amen. that was the answer that was the faith answer not five loaves and two fishes that was ridiculous not 200 pennies that was ridiculous God you can. And that's when Jesus Christ steps in and performs the actual miracle. So let's see finally the master of the miracle. In verse number 10, then 
Jesus said. Jesus takes matters into his own hands. Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place and the men sat down in number about 5,000 and Jesus took the loaves. What did he use? He used the boy's lunch. Now the boy is talking to Andrew or Andrew brings the boy. However it went down and Andrew doesn't take the boy's lunch and bring it to Jesus. He points out to Jesus that the boy has a lunch. And notice what Jesus does. He does exactly the opposite. Jesus does not debate or talk about what he's going to do with the loaves. He just grabs the loaves. What did he use? He used five little pita breads and two fishes. And look, this is what the text says. It says, he gave thanks. He distributed them to the disciples. Now, there's 12 disciples here, right? You already, the miracle's already unfolding just as Jesus is passing stuff. I don't know exactly how this happened. I, I don't know if just every time he handed something off, it just reappeared. Or every time a disciple handed a basket down a row, if every time somebody grabbed a piece of bread, it reappeared. I don't know exactly how this happened. But here's what I know. I know that as Jesus was giving out the boys' lunch, it multiplied to such a degree that everybody ate as much as they wanted to eat. And when it was all said and done, the disciples picked up entire baskets filled with leftovers. That's what I know happened in this passage. What did he use? He used a little lunch. Can I encourage you in 2022 to give God something to work with? The widow gave her two mites, but it was all that she had. Give God something to work with. Hey, let me explain something. You say, preacher, you have no idea. I don't have much. I'm not much. You know what? Do you really think that's the story? You think that's the headline of John chapter 6? In fact, that you ought to be encouraged because it's actually the opposite. Somebody say, man, if God would just send a millionaire to River City Baptist Church, it would just really take care of things. No, it wouldn't. Are you kidding me? God takes people that only have five loaves and two fishes but they're actually willing to give it. And the truth of the matter is, the more wealthy someone has no propensity, or excuse me, no, no direct reflection on how generous they are anyways. And the truth of the matter is, it's not one big person that takes care of everybody, it's little people giving what they have to Christ. That's what he used. And what he did was take it into his hands and multiply it and feed the multitude to perform one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. Can you imagine the boy for just a moment? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about what the aftermath would have been? I don't know if he got his lunch back. Can you just see Jesus? I can see him doing that. Hey, here you go, kid. Thanks. I don't know. I imagine probably not. I imagine the boy ate there just like everybody else did. And probably looked around him at at least the people sitting right to his right or his left and go, this is crazy. And then, can you imagine him getting home that night? Can you imagine him going home to mom? 
How was your lunch, Mom? You have no idea how awesome my lunch was. Let me tell you about this. Can you imagine? She probably thought he was crazy. She probably thought he was lying. But I know this. Nobody could take it away from that boy. He knew what God did. And this is the great thing about living by faith, church. The great thing about living by faith is that there's things God will do that nobody can take away from you because you've seen God supply. You see, when I hold my, a basketball in my hands, it's just a basketball. When I put it in the same basketball into the hands of somebody like LeBron James, you, you get multiple NBA championships, MVPs, and Olympic gold medals. When you put a golf club in my hands, it's dangerous. When you put a golf club in Bubba Watson's hands, you get multiple major championships. A paintbrush in my hand looks like a stick figure, but in the hand of Picasso, it's a major, major, major worldwide known painting. God takes things into his own hands and does a work. And that's what the story of this year needs to be for you. Put it in God's hands. And the conclusion that we would all make is the conclusion that is made in verse number 14. Then those men, when they had seen a sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, interestingly, and I'll pick this up next week in verse 15. It says, therefore, when they were about to come to him... Forced to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The problem with the response to this is that they recognized his great power. They recognized who he was, but they wanted to take him and use him for their own purposes on their own terms. And that is maybe one of the greatest mistakes that we make in our Christian lives. Is that we see who Jesus is. We know what Jesus can do, and we try to take him and manipulate him to our own terms. That is not submitting yourself to the lordship of Christ. That is the lordship of Christ in your mind being submitted to you. Folks, I want to tell you something right now. If you're here today, and your relationship with Jesus is all about whatever conveniences he can provide for you, we're not talking about the same Jesus here. He is not the Jesus that you take and manipulate for whatever you want or to only include him in your life when you're trying to get something out of him. This is a savior that we should be falling down, worshiping, and surrendering our entire lives to. My question for you this morning as you start this year, have you ever personally bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted him as the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you ever believed upon him and received his free gift of salvation? Or are you in this thing for Jesus for the wrong reasons? My friend, if you're having a phony faith, inauthentic faith, 21st century American Christianity faith that uses God for whatever it can get out of God, then I would encourage you on this first Sunday of the year to repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus and become a disciple of Christ. Let's pray together. Well, I want to encourage you in just a moment to start the new year in prayer. Maybe the Lord was spoken to your heart this morning about ways you can step out by faith, trusting God, following his lordship this year. One thing I love about this platform is we now have carpeted stairs on the platform, and it's a great place for you to come and pray each Sunday. And I'm 
want to encourage us to do more of that. And I know that through COVID and through just difficult physical um, circumstances here, it's not always been easy for us to respond. But I want to encourage you to be a a hearer and a doer of the word, to receive the word with meekness, to follow what the Lord is speaking to your heart and to be actively a recipient and participant in the services. And so we're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus before we do. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you would. Is there anybody here today that would say, preacher, before you pray and before we sing, I'd like you to know that I do not know for sure that Jesus Christ is my Savior and that heaven is my home. But I would like for you to pray for me because I'd like to know. I'd like to know Jesus is my Savior. I'd like to know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Preacher, I'd appreciate it if you'd say a word of prayer for me as you close the service. Is there someone like that today? If that's you, would you just hold your hand up so that I could see it and pray for you? Is there someone there like that today? Just say, preacher, that's me. I don't know for sure, but I'd like to know that Jesus is my Savior and that heaven is my home. Pray for me, preachers. That's you. Just lift your hand right up, and then you can lower it right back down, and I will pray for you. Let's go ahead and stand if we could. As the the team begins to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I encourage you to respond to the Lord's word this morning. Decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. 